Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 47 of The Squad Room. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I'm an active duty patrol sergeant in Southern California. I have an in-studio guest today, but before we get to him, I want to remind you that if you want to support the show, you want to open your mind a little bit, go to audibletrial.com for your free Audible subscription for 30 days. Audible is all, of course, the audiobooks, and there's a lot of them out there. Audibletrial.com forward slash The Squad Room for a free 30-day sign-up, a free ebook. And you help support the show. Uh, for episode notes, you can go to thesquadroom.net and uh, check us out there and learn more about what we're doing here and our big old mission. Uh, my guest on episode 47 is a return guest. Uh, the only guest who seems to have bad luck when he comes by the show because uh, something's always happening, it seems, uh, when he's around. Aaron Baruga, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Garrett. Aaron, uh, of course, Gorilla Approach. Uh, I'm trying to turn down the audio. It's really loud. Uh Gorilla Approach Firearms Training. Uh, he's been on the show before, and uh, we have a lot to catch up on. I joke because the last time you were on, uh, it was like my dishwasher broke or something like that, and was like uh, causing a big old mess. And remember that? And I had some like, yeah, I had this repairman who was here, and he was a pain in the ass. And we it took us like two and a half hours to record that episode. Yeah, I was surprised you cut out the part where we actually brought him onto the episode and talked. <laughs> and he had some really it's interesting, surprisingly interesting tactics. Yeah, he that he had used. a <laughs> big, big EDC guy. You know, had his everyday carry on him. Yeah, really, yeah. Really anxious to talk about it. Yeah, no. Thanks for having me back on the you know repeat episode. Yeah, so last time we had a like a dishwasher repairman here that kept interrupting the episode. Today, my son's home sick, um, so uh, he uh, might not make a surprise appearance on the show. I'm willing to bet he's not going to last very long uh, staying quiet watching his movie. So he might make a surprise appearance. So, uh, you know, you're, you're a military guy. You're used to having to adapt and overcome. So uh, hopefully you can adapt to the five-year-old with the snotty nose. <laughs> That would probably put him online with a lot of the gorillas that I dealt with overseas. <laughs> he still probably smells as, as equally. Yeah. So give everybody a quick rundown, just the, the brief synopsis of, of your background and why, uh, why you're on, you know, why we have you on the show like this. Yeah. So for those of you that aren't familiar, my background is in special forces. Uh, I got to do some fun stuff overseas um, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pacific Theater of Operations. And now I'm back to being a regular civilian that still gets to do some fun stuff uh, with law enforcement through my training company, Gorilla Approach. Um, you know, there's, if you're listening to this podcast, you, you're probably familiar with, you know, all the shenanigans of the tactical industry. And there's a lot of information out there. And, you know, I think one of the different perspectives I try to provide is actually basing a lot of this stuff on, you know, real world experience, not necessarily to say like, you know, Hey, I've got all this figured out. Cause there's a lot of stuff I, you know, don't have figured out. Uh, but just kind of bringing in that perspective where we're recalibrating stuff back to like, Hey, we can observe how this happens in the real world. Let's actually apply that to how we train. And that's been one of the big pushes I've been, uh, really focusing on with my company and my training. Yeah. So you've had a busy year. Uh I mean, 2016 seems like it's been pretty productive for you. You've had a lot of uh, opportunities come up. And, and since we've talked, you've really expanded, it seems, a lot of your law enforcement training uh, and your interaction with law enforcement, right? Yeah, I've been very fortunate uh, with just how receptive guys have been. And at the same time, um, just what I've been able to learn from them as well, because mm -hmm. obviously, you know, I don't come from a law enforcement background. Uh, the nexus that I do have with law enforcement is that I've also been shot at too, similar to some of the guys that yeah. I've trained with. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I've been very, uh, I'd say privileged to uh, work with some of the most forward thinking officers 
in um, agencies across the country throughout this year. So, yeah, things have been going pretty well. So let's get into that a little bit because I'm curious. So, you know, training here in California, we sometimes have the benefit, it seems, of of training and training standards that are much higher than other states. Um, Talking to an officer in the Midwest who, for example, who has to qualify with his firearm once a year. Mm -hmm. And we... Most departments here, mine especially, we, we qualify quarterly, which mm-hmm. still probably isn't isn't enough. But you know what I mean. It's it's more, and, and we sometimes uh, the post standards here in California are pretty strict. So we always wonder. I always wonder what the, uh, the the there's a vast difference it seems in training and in tactics between West Coast, East Coast, North and South. But what are some of the things you've learned about the state of police training in, uh, in 2016? Well, that's a big piece well, maybe, maybe platform we, of authority to give me right now. All right. Well, like, I mean, <laughs> you started. The, you know, you, you, there was a time. There was a there was a time where you hadn't trained law enforcement, right? I mean, you came out of the military, and you had yet to train law enforcement. And you, I'm sure you had a perception or an idea at that time. And now here we are, what two years into your company, three years, and you now have some sort of basis of belief. What maybe? What is that? What has changed? Maybe that's a better question. Yeah. Um. You know, I think that you're right with saying that California does have some of the most, I think, forward thinking law enforcement officers. And that's not just, you know, a bias because, you know, we're both here in California. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there's uh, a lot to be said from an organizational standpoint. Obviously, you've got L.A. right down the road. Um, They're influencing a lot. So they're big, big thought leaders with a lot of stuff that takes place. And then you've got... um, you know, I think a lot of the uh, more local departments that catch a lot of the similar information from those guys versus if you go out to, you know, like the Midwest or the East Coast, uh, you could have departments that are pretty sparse throughout a state. And, you know, the transfer of knowledge that's taking place between those guys, it might uh, be very limited because uh, of just what their more routine policing operations are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's a lot that influences, you know, uh, where a department's at with its training culture. And one of the things I've noticed across the board is, yes, absolutely, you guys do not receive enough funding or time to go train. But, I mean, that's that's not really an argument that you can ever overcome. There's never going to be enough money. There's never going to be enough bullets. There's never going to be enough uh, time to mm-hmm. uh, get you guys trained. So what what are the approaches that we can have to where we can kind of maximize the limited resources that we do have? And what I've noticed across the board is that uh, guys kind of recognize that, you know, their department is never going to give them the right amount of training that they need to actually save their lives. And that's, you know, that's not trying to throw a department under the bus. It's not trying to throw the leadership. That's just, that's just what it is. That's just the status quo of how, you know, resources get distributed and how, uh, manpower and, you know, all that gets distributed. That's, that's, mm-hmm. you know, things could be done differently, obviously some places, but you know, it's not, Hey, we made it seven minutes and 38 seconds. Uh, my son is interrupting just a little bit. Well, I'm sure we'll have to figure that out. But, yeah. um, so, all right, so we're coming back from a hard edit because uh, I had to uh, go pick out another movie for my son. And right in the middle of you explaining um, where you saw military, uh, sorry, the training in law enforcement, um, and that officers are acknowledging that we just we know for a fact that our departments are not going to don't have the resources uh to give us that that time and space so you are you're encountering officers obviously they're coming to your courses that you teach all over the country 
on their own volition. You know, they're, they're, they're paying their own money and their own ammo and all that to come. What are, what are they, uh, what kind of mindset are they coming in with or what kind of training are they coming in with? I think what's really refreshing is they're coming in with the mindset that they realize that there's more out there that they need to be seeking with regards to sharpening their skill sets. Um, too often, like the issue you'll see with guys, even in the military too, is, you know, they get that title, they get that duty position. And they're just like, they close their minds off and like whatever the first thing is that they learn with regards to marksmanship or tactics or uh, combatives, like that is the way that they do it all the time. Um, So I'm very fortunate with the guys that are coming into my classes that they're very aggressive learners, not just aggressive, like guys that like, you know, I want to, you know, shoot through a windshield. Like, no, they're, they're very um, methodical with like how they're approaching stuff, how they ask questions. And it's not, a, Hey, this is going to be a fun thing for me. This is like, no, I, I'm really trying to absorb as much as possible because I recognize the importance of expanding my perspective with regards to, uh, violent encounters. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's unique to you as an instructor? Because, I mean, you're kind of a, um, counterculture is the word I come up with, but that's not really right. You're so uh, punk rock, bro. You're kind of <laughs> punk rock. Um, you're very vocal, uh, about, some of the other, like, you know, some of the kind of current standards of the firearms training field. Yeah. I, and in a constructive way, but I mean, you always make a very valid point. Um, but are you seeing them come with, uh, well, what kind of, what kind of stuff are you seeing them come in with that maybe a bad habit that they're able to overcome? Uh, well, I mean, before even just discussing them coming in with a bad habit, I think that, you know, what's getting them to come to the classes is, you know, I've talked about this before uh, about like, you know, the influence of like the internet and social media on the transfer of knowledge and the hierarchy of knowledge. And just this like hyper democracy that we experience because everyone has a voice now. And we still don't really know how that's affecting state training culture. So uh, when I say state, I mean like, you know, the law enforcement, the military, Mm -hmm. Um, because they always get propped up as the most legitimate organizations or the thought leaders on, you know, like tactical training, you know, obviously the commercial sector plays its role, um, just like it does in any industry, but the state is always gonna be the most legitimate function. So what I'm noticing is that through this, you know, hyper democracy of, uh, social media guys are responding to what I'm saying because I'm actually taking a stance on something. Uh, I think that too often people just regurgitate arguments without actually understanding what they are. Mm-hmm. So if you, you look at like the transfer of knowledge in a two tiered approach down at like the, the base level you have, you know, the new recruit or you have the the white belt or whatever the, uh, uh, the college freshman who's trying to learn the different concepts they're forming their own opinion, but they are, they're not aware of all the arguments yet. What I see in shooting is guys will be in that lower tier, and there's nothing wrong with that. We all start off there in any discipline. Yeah. Is they'll mask or handicap um, their laziness, um, excuse me, they'll mask it and they'll handicap their development by saying, well, that's just how I do it, bro. Or, hey, bro, shooter's preference. So 
they'll say stuff like that that tries to make it sound more zen and rounded out and holistic where it's like, well, it's just more tool, tools for my toolbox. It's like, yeah, but that's not a tool you'll ever use. <laughs> um, so you stay kind of at that lower level. And then we get to like the upper tier of knowledge where, you know, you become the black belt or whatever. And you really do have more emphasis behind saying, hey, it's, you know, the individual's preference or, hey, more tools for your toolbox because you're aware of the arguments. And you can actually substantiate them with evidence. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing with a lot of training is guys are kind of aware of the arguments with regards to regurgitation, but they can't really substantiate them with evidence. Um, and a good example of that is like, you know, uh, any tactical shooter that gets in an argument about like the whole uh, outside knee up while you're in a kneeling position to shoot. So if you're behind a piece of cover, you know, do you have your outside knee up? Do you have your inside knee up? What's the whole argument there? And it's a lot of guys will regurgitate like, well, this is what I was taught. And it's like, well, let's actually like, you know, think about this and substantiate it with some kind of, you know, um, hard um, proof as, you know, outside of just me saying what some guy on the Internet said. So I think that guys are gravitating towards um, what I'm saying is because I'm actually saying something, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not you agree with it or you disagree with it it's I'm taking a stance. I'm not saying, Hey, my way is the only way because I think that's a trap you can fall into where, you know, once you start closing your mind off like that, you truly stop learning. Uh, But it's like, you know, in college, my favorite professors were the ones that would not just regurgitate the arguments or the paradigms and the concepts. The ones that would say, Hey, here is, here's the paradigm. Mm -hmm. And here's why I don't buy, believe this. Here's why I believe this. And it's more refreshing to see someone willing to take a stance and be like, no, I have an opinion. I can substantiate it with an argument and evidence versus someone just being like, hey, no, it's, you know, everything's cool. Just, you know, be open to everything. Well, it's like, well, what does that even mean? You know, if you're open to everything, then are, are you really like, how do you filter out sure. the nonsense? Right. If you're open to everything, yeah. you're not committed to anything. Yeah. Right. So how has your experience been in in translating your military tactics and military training into a law enforcement um, setting. It's, you know, at first I thought it was going to be one of those things where, you know, uh, guys will get hung up on the verbiage or the language, you know, obviously like suppressive fire, like you can't ever do suppressive fire in law enforcement, but you can pull security from a deliberate position that you can shoot from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at first it was just me doing a lot of that with actually changing uh the the words and then you know i realized that wasn't enough like guys uh need to be shown they need to see what stuff looks like um so that they're aware of like you know the dangers or the benefits and a good example of that is uh, a lot of stuff i do with the vehicles um we kind of get into this mindset when we're shooting at cardboard that we can get really complacent with um, our posture and um, how we're actually going to behave in the real world. So something I like to do with my ballistic labs is I'll go through a lot of the, you know, contemporary arguments that are out there. Um, I'll look at the traditional stuff we did uh, prior to the global war on terror, just kind of some of the stuff we learned overseas. And then I'll kind of introduce some of the more um, popular, uh, but not necessarily valid arguments that exist out there um, for like ballistic labs. And I'll demonstrate them and then I'll tie it all together at the end with the piece where it's like, all right, hey, so we just did all this stuff. Now we're going to shoot the crap out of this car in five seconds, mm-hmm. see how many rounds we get off and see what happens. And that's one of those things where like you know, a guy sees, uh, you know, a car get annihilated by 60 rounds of 5.56 in five seconds. 
and it changes his perspective or her perspective to like, oh, this is how I can actually use this as a piece of terrain or like, hey, this is what my real expectations should be. Mm -hmm. So I'd had to transition a lot of just like, oh, I'll substitute words. Um, But it it was more than that to actually showing them um, in like these uh, research designs on the range. Like, hey, this is how we validate this tactic. This is how we validate this technique. Mm -hmm. Um, It's more than just, you know, uh, chalk talking it or switching out lingo for different stuff. So um, you wrote an interesting piece in was a foreign policy magazine. You get your guest editorial on the militarization. I slipped in there somehow. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to keep writing until they Absolutely. figure out. No, that's awesome. <laughs> until they, they realize I don't got that PhD and then I'll uh, <laughs> pack my bags. And that's no, great. But so there was an, there was a, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll post the link to it so everybody can read it, but give, give everybody the quick synopsis of your argument in that piece that you wrote. Well, there's two, there's the one about, uh, law enforcement receiving military training yeah. and well there's there's a second one yeah the follow-up one was oh this is, we're gonna go down the political route um it was no it's one i wrote after the election just oh. because of how um people were kind of that that 48 hours afterwards where everyone was regardless of which side of the fence you're on everyone was kind of being ridiculous i yeah um, I we, we can explain well i was i'm talking about the militarization one because that, that that's obviously the most applicable here yeah so the 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 emphasis behind that article was that law enforcement faces a training paradox that, you know, an active shooter event, a domestic terror event, those are the most dangerous situations that you can find yourself in. But it's also the least likely kind of crisis that you'll encounter on the streets, you know, or even in your entire career mm-hmm. or, you know, a department could go generations before they experience something like that. So what does that mean with how we structure training culture, um, what we expose officers to and, you know, what we place an emphasis on. And the argument that, you know, I make is the most specialized units within law enforcement receive the best training. You know, that's just an objective fact. Um, they got the bigger budgets, they got the cooler Velcro, um, (laughs) the cooler flashlights and Velcro, Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, they, they consolidate a lot of the more, uh, forward thinking individuals in those organizations or excuse me, in those uh, units. Mm-hmm. So SWAT SRT, um, or depending on how your department is organized, maybe some of the plain clothes guys, they're going out and doing stuff. Um, they receive the most training, but a lot of times they're the least likely individuals that are going to be the first responders. It's going to be the guys in patrol. So there's obviously a lot of issues with the bureaucracy of law enforcement training with regards to, you know, when a guy gets introduced to a carbine, when a guy gets qualified to do this or that. Um, my argument was if you can introduce guys to military style tactics within reason. So I'm, you know, not teaching dudes how to, uh, assault a mine wired obstacle and clear a trench, you know, like that's kind of ridiculous, but like basic classic, um, like fire and maneuver bounding overwatch mm-hmm. that will resonate um, with the dude and create this foundation for how he can perform uh, in the real world. Because a lot of the uh, tactics that you guys do receive um, and rightfully so they're more catered towards that one-on-one threat in close quarters. That's going to be over in, you know, three to five seconds. And uh, maybe there'll be an exchange of, you know, like, 10 rounds or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that last part, I just got to 
I don't have any data to back that up. Let's back it. <laughs> no, it's something. It's something like that. I mean, it's three to five seconds. Yeah, and it's something under ten rounds. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's it's a so it's it's a very dangerous um, encounter, but it's very different than what you'll experience in a sustained fight. So, um, you know, the North Hollywood shootout, two armed mm-hmm. and armored suspects yeah. that ended up you know wounding like ten officers and eight civilians, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It doesn't make sense for law enforcement to train for infantry tactics every single time they got to train. That's, you know, that doesn't make any sense. But if guys are introduced to it at a single point in their career, when you are responding to uh, active shooter crisis or whatever the new in vogue term is, because I know a lot of LE guys hate the term active shooter. Yeah, we've um, moved to our department. I calls it rapid mass murder. Rapid mass murder. That's like a like a hot rap album about to drop from <laughs> some <laughs> some rap artist. Yeah, rap and mass murder. That does yeah. sound like a rap album. But yeah, they're yeah. they're getting away from the active shooter yeah, tag. So, but what we see is um, when guys are responding to that, it's usually a hodgepodge group of patrol officers that have to, you know, coordinate a plan on the go mm-hmm. um, and make a decision. So, if the you know if the crisis doesn't end the second the first patrol guy shows up. Um, and you have a situation like Dallas where you guys have to actually actively go out and hunt for the active shooter. Uh, if you have an introduction to military tactics beyond, you know, getting in a formation, but understanding how to read terrain, mm-hmm. uh, dispersion between individuals, depending on the terrain, command and control, uh, understanding the importance of communication, low light situations, what to do when someone gets shot, you know, and you're, you know, um, uh, your risk matrix with regards to like, Hey, can we continue on? Or do we have to stay here and rally, rally, rally the wagons around this guy? Mm-hmm. So if guys receive like a basic, uh, you know, introduction to fire and maneuver techniques, they can understand stuff like pulling security and a bounding overwatch movement so that, you know, the maneuver element isn't exposed uh, and just basic stuff like that to where it's at least in there, in their minds. Mm-hmm. Should they encounter the situation? And I think that it would also help with just uh, command and control issues at the IC. So, you know, I've never worn the badge in my my life, um, but I've been fortunate enough to see some active shooter training events where it's just uh, a bunch of Indian chiefs running around and no Indians, or it's the opposite of that. It's a bunch of Indians running around and no one taking control. So if you kind of have that uh, basic uh, military doctrinal approach with tactics, Mm-hmm. you can adapt it to any situation. Tactics are tactics. You know, obviously the application is what gives them, you know, their validity. Yeah. Let's see. My experience has been that the active shooter training is always emphasis is always emphasized or that the scenario is always, you know, get your three or four, get that. Well, if you still use diamond formation or three or whatever, and you go and you just do this moving search, you know, of the building or mm-hmm. wherever you're looking at. And there isn't a lot of emphasis on, the background stuff, the communication, um, you know, putting someone in charge, you know, what, all those other things that you just, you just talked about. And you're right. It's a hodgepodge of officers that show up. And one of the most frustrating things I think as, as a patrol sergeant is, and I think anyone can understand this is like, you know, not only is it a hodgepodge of people, but I mean, for example, on my squad, I've had Four new people come or go from my squad in the last two, three months, right? We're, just, we're kind of constantly moving people around. People are getting promoted. People are transferring to other stations or whatever. So even the level of training that you can provide one month might not be there a month later, right? Mm-hmm. Those people might be gone. 
and I, in, in retraining those things. It's, you know, one of the things I'm most jealous about when it comes to like the, the military's ability is, is those workups before you go, you know, a lot of the, a lot of, and I'm sure you did them and I know the seals do them, but you spend time together. Oh, you, had to, you had to get that seal quote in there for the SEO for this episode. <laughs> that way um, people will search it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just, I know that special ops communities do workups, right? I mean, you spend time together with the group you're going out to fight with training and training and training. And, uh, we, it's not realistic to do that in law enforcement, but I wish there was a way to have at least more consistent. Yeah. And I think one of the, you know, the fallacies of the training mindset is that you need a lot of resources and you need a lot of time. Like, no, you can, you can take dry guns and dry flow through a structure and work on, you know, your different types of CQB, you know, wherever the flavor is for your department. Mm-hmm. And you can do a training day that just focuses on that. You do it to a point of repetition that people feel comfortable flowing through a building and that will carry over to other aspects of the job. Mm-hmm. And I, I reference that specifically because a lot of times when I see guys, um, I, I wouldn't really call it, you know, like CQB when they're doing like these active shooter training events, they're, they're flowing through a building, but mm-hmm. it's kind of like this, they're, they're clearing through it. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty with how an individual should posture themselves in the environment. And then there's a lot of uncertainty with how um, the team interacts. So like you said, you get a cell of, or excuse me, <laughs> cell. <laughs> you, you get a team of like three or four officers and you know, they, they're, they're the response. And I see a lot of guys just like micromanaging, like, Hey, you know, you move up over here. It's like giving commands to like move individual officers like their pieces on a chessboard and they're just moving like 10 feet mm-hmm. down a wall or something or they're moving to another position it's like no you need to feel comfortable doing that and that's something that can be accomplished not in complex training you can just like i said you dry flow a building you can go to your department's gym uh is that ah. well is that assuming too much that's, that's that? a huge <laughs> i don't know at least for me yeah but i mean you can you can you can do these low budget training events right, right, that right. focus more on the mindset and you don't always have to be center rounds on range you don't always have to be um you know uh doing yeah it's it's really more about the group and getting that group to be able to work together and Absolutely. know what you know what the guy on your left or right is going to do or you know how you're all going to work in those situations it's incumbent on us patrol supervisors to make sure that that stuff happens in lieu of some sort of organized program within our department. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that uh, the departments emphasize active shooter too much? I mean, that, cause that is like you say, a very small portion of what we might ever accomplish or might ever encounter. I mean, versus statistically, you know, and, and you brought it up like the SWAT guys are, they are actually the least likely to get in, into a shooting. But um, when they do, that threat is obviously a little heightened, mm-hmm. but most situations are either on a patrol basis or have resolved before the time SWAT ever gets there. And patrol are the ones who normally get these in these shooting events. Um, do you think it's appropriate that we spend so much time focused on it and talking about it uh, because it is such an outlier or do we need to be focusing more on those, you know, eight to f- those f- f- 10 second and under fights that, that occur? Well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's less about structuring it for, a specific event versus if you just understand tactics at a fundamental level, you can really apply them to any situation. Now, obviously the tactics you employ as an individual versus the tactics you employ as a small team are different. You know, your posture 
when you're by yourself is going to be slightly different depending on the situation. Um, but if you, you just have that basic, uh, foundation and understanding of what the environment is, uh, during a hostile encounter or a violent encounter, whether it's a shooting or, you know, dude's got a knife, whatever it is, you can properly pattern your mind for success. So it's, it's less about like, you know, Hey, how do we plan for, I think the biggest thing with active shooter is getting the supervisors and the mid-level leadership to understand how to coordinate resources. You know, the tactical officer or the, excuse me, the individual officers on the ground, even if they're, you know, flowing through a structure and they're not, uh, you know, they don't look like Delta force going through as long as they understand how to keep up the momentum, the initiative and, to you know, keep movement towards where the suspected, um, shooter is at, you know, they're, they're going to be able to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what I see happening with a lot of these active shooter events is it's more about like getting the uh, next line of leadership to understand how do we allocate resources? How do we integrate fire? That's a big one I've been seeing. Integrate uh, fi- like fire departments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How to yeah. get them in going from the war. <laughs> Keep going. How to get them going from, uh, how to get fire going from, you know, the warm zone to the hot zone. And that's yeah. where I see a lot of breakdown with uh, tactics is. <laughs> My son is uh, Scooby Doo has ended. You can watch another one, Brady. I forget what I was talking about. Oh, how to integrate fire. All right, so uh, heartbreak again. Sorry, everybody. Uh, Episode is going to be a little disjointed for some people. Uh, you're in the middle of talking about integrating fire from hot zone to warm zone. Yeah, so just kind of going back to what we were talking about uh, with, you know, do do we place emphasis on a specific event, you know, or, you know, should we look at tactics in a broader, uh, aperture? Mm -hmm. And I think that we should do the, the, the latter of the two and look at tactics in a broader aperture instead of, you know, focusing on a specific event, because if you focus in on a specific event, the moment that you're outside of those boundaries, you're kind of like, uh, I don't know what to do versus if you have the mindset overall to engage in the environment in this situation, you'll be better set up for success. Uh, so what I've noticed with a lot of, you know, active shooter incidents is, or not incidences, training events, right. um, is, uh, there's a lot more to be gained from the command and control aspect with getting, um, whoever assumes the leadership position comfortable with delegating resources. There's a lot that can be done at the individual tactical level, obviously. Um, but if you, you can't communicate where people and resources need to go, that could be more catastrophic than, you know, um, an individual's, you know, failure at, you know, um, let me back up a little bit. <laughs> Another hard, hard headed point. Hard-headed. Uh, so, uh, what, what we notice is, uh, at these active shooter training events is there's a lot of times more to be learned for whoever the individual is that assumes that informal position of leadership and authority um, getting them to understand how to properly delegate resources and personnel. Um, we can see that there's a little bit more that can be learned from that maybe than like, you know, what an individual is doing with like, Hey, I shot my gun or Hey, I shot this SIM gun at the, uh, at the shooter. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. Well, let's look at, uh, what was happening with the unit overall, because, uh, any hesitation by the leadership could, um, be catastrophic for, you know, the, the victims that are there. And what, one of the things I noticed was, uh, how teams are trying to integrate fire for teams that haven't already integrated fire into their response. So this idea that, you know, we want uh, firefighters to go from the warm zone to the hot zone. How do we make that happen? And if there was a basic understanding of like 
how to apply tactics, you know, pulling security, understanding fire and movement, um, reading the terrain, observations, uh, fields of fire. I'm going to like army. <laughs> I'm defaulting to army uh, terms right now. Might as well just uh, finish them all out. <laughs> Avenues of approach, sectors of fire. Uh, no, but just understanding how to read the terrain. Um, it would mitigate a lot of these in the weeds discussions that take place. So integrating fire should not be that big of an issue. You provide a security element that moves with them into the hot zone. You have an individual pull security or maybe two individuals, whatever they do their work on the victims and then you're good. There's a lot of different SOPs that you can develop on that. Mm -hmm. But what happens is because guys have very weak, uh, tactical backgrounds, no fault of their own. You know, they're coming from different job sets or skill sets. Uh, guys will argue about nuance that doesn't really need to be argued about. So like, well, where's the best place to put the person in security for fire? It's like, well, if you have a moving element, you know, if you can try to maintain 360, you're good. It's like, well, should he be in the front or the back? It's like, well, where did, you know, where was the most likely place to experience contact in the front? Okay. So probably should have him in the front. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of getting into the weeds with a lot of this stuff where mm-hmm. if you can make guys feel more comfortable with just, um, reading the situation, uh, they'll be better off. Right. Okay. So, I mean, we militarization of police was a big topic over the last year. It still is. And that was part of your, your article was that we don't need a militarized police force. And I don't disagree with that, but I, I, to me, it sounds like we have the opportunity to take a lot of positives of the military and apply them to law enforcement. So, I mean, if we're Really, if it's just semantics and we're just changing the names, don't we have a militarized police force in the best sense of the term if we are taking these things and, and, and learning from them? Uh, are you talking more about like the equipment and that sort of stuff? I, I think it's more with the, the training. So if you have I, I think that, you know, like I said in my article is, you know, America does not need a militarized police force uh, the way a soldier looks at the battlefield and the way a law enforcement officer should look at the city, you know, that he's protecting should be very different, you know, and what changes, uh, is obviously the legal constraint. Um, so if a soldier is engaged in, you know, combat operations overseas, there's a little bit more, I don't want to say leniency with regards to, uh, you know, employing force, but you know, a soldier knows he's going to hit a target. He knows he's probably going to encounter, uh, enemy personnel. There might be non-combatants so he can adjust his posture accordingly. That kind of shapes your mindset a little bit differently than what a law enforcement officer is where, you know, you're not dealing with enemy combatants or, you know, civilians. Everyone's a civilian. You know, then there's suspects and, you know, uh, there's bad guys out there. Mm -hmm. Um, But you, you, I think, have to have more of a uh, patience with understanding that um, not everybody is you know, a bad person or not everyone is out there to get you. And I understand that that is a a big issue that law enforcement deals with with regards to just like the cynicism towards the job where after, you know, a certain amount of years you you get exhausted with it. Um, And I've, you know, talked to several guys about that, about how they maintain that resiliency with, you know, not just getting a chip on their shoulder. And I imagine it's very difficult for um, you guys to be able to um, not develop that. Uh, But with regards to like, you know, militarization of the police. I think that the training is where it would really benefit um, our officers, especially with just the type of engagements we're seeing them um, 
encounter mm-hmm. um, on the streets. So again, it's just framing that mindset for, hey, this is how I behave in this particular situation um, versus, you know, maybe not going to lethal force, maybe having proper stress-induced training introduced to um, the training culture so that guys understand that maybe patience instead of going to guns right away. Now, th- that's not to second guess any guy who's ever used his gun because, you know, obviously I wasn't there in his shoes. Um, but what we see is a lot of guys are not introduced to realism or stress-induced training in a purposeful manner to where they don't associate anxiety with the need to use their firearm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what's uh, not properly taught or, excuse me, not properly taught a lot of times is guys go through like, uh, haphazard stress induced training where they associate anxiety with, I need to use my gun versus I can be anxious and still working through a problem set. And maybe there's other things I can do. So it's, it's, you know, the militarization thing is more of like the, uh, getting guys in a training environment where they are truly pushed, um, to their mental boundaries and their physical boundaries so that they, you know, react to the situation appropriately to save themselves to, um, you know, mm-hmm. not excessively. <laughs> right. That cor- not, don't allow that cortisol dump to yeah. take over the brain. Tim Kennedy. Uh, was I think the- I, I think I've heard that name before. Yeah. Um, uh- <laughs> he was on the show uh, a couple episodes ago, and he he has the same argument. You know, and 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 he is doing his own law enforcement training now, um, and said the exact same thing that uh, his experience is that law enforcement hasn't been given the set of resources to learn how to adapt to that level of stress without going to the gun. Mm-hmm. And he used an example of a, I forget where the city was, but two officers were in a fight on the ground and didn't have the ground control tactics to take this guy into control without using their firearm. And they were justified in doing so. I mean, it was a legitimate threat and the guy had a gun but his argument was that it could have been resolved without force had they had better ground control tactics. Now, of course, he's an MMA fighter and jiu-jitsu guy, so he's <laughs> going to be, you know, focused on the lack of, of ground control or the lack of jiu-jitsu training or whatever. But um, I, it's not the first time I've heard he, – when he said it or when you said it, it's not the first time I've heard people see that there's that gap. So how do we, on the individual officer level, because we've already acknowledged that the department's not going to do it for us – how do we uh, induce this this stress, and how do we succeed in, in teaching ourselves how to adapt during those encounters where we are stressed out, where we have a threat, but maybe we sh- don't need to shoot? We could maybe, but we don't need to, right? I mean, there's, that's one of the things about law enforcement I think that people miss is oftentimes uh, we can shoot, but we don't. Right. I mean, so many times we have a we have an encounter that we could have could have gone lethal, but we chose not to. You shot to wound instead. No, well, no, <laughs> don't even start <laughs> oh, that. Uh, no, but I mean, yeah, like, you yeah, know, abs- yeah, I understand. We take an extra second and, and, and are able to deploy a different tactic as a result or something like that. You know, yeah, I've I, had instances in my career where I could have shot, but I didn't. And a lot of officers have flip side to that, though, is is jumping to the gun right away. So how do we create that stress in training? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, just, just to supplement that real quick, I think NPR put out a piece uh, recently about a law enforcement officer in the Midwest who was a Marine veteran of Afghanistan, I believe. And he was in a situation where he was responding to a domestic violence call 
and the gentleman or excuse me the suspect was out on his porch and he wanted to have suicide by officer Mm -hmm. so he had a gun in his hand he wanted the cop to shoot him and the cop showed up this is the marine uh, veteran of afghanistan showed up saw the guy had the gun in his hand and was kind of like uh not really sure that this guy is a threat you know Uh, but he was you know had that tactical patience to kind of look at the situation saw the gun didn't immediately go to grab his gun out and be like you know i gotta shoot this guy he's a threat so he was trying to like talk through the situation his backup showed up and then they smoked the guy as soon as they showed up because they're like he's got a gun and they shot him Hmm. um so obviously you know in the article you get a single perspective who knows what else was actually transpiring on the ground but it started a necessary conversation about like you know hey you know having the patience to realize like is my immediate security being threatened right now? Now I know that this is going to be a, a, what I just described is a very divisive narrative because there'll be guys will be like, you, you know, he's got to shoot that guy because you know, it's us against them. I'm going home at the end of the night. And I get that, you know, I get that, you know, I've been overseas in environments where I'm tired of people shooting at me and it's like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my son, you've been overseas. Uh, sorry. And, yeah. And uh, so I, you know, I, I get that. I've, I've been overseas in situations where, you know, I'm tired of getting shot at too, or it's like, Hey man, I want to go home. Um, but having that tactical, uh, patience and maturity to just kind of like maybe not necessarily go re- recognizing when the threat is present. So how do we structure that into? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Another hard edit as my, uh, very sick and very needy <laughs> son. There's a, Unnamed Disney movie in the background that I'm probably violating copyright on if it's getting picked up by the microphones. But anyway, you have that many or you have that big of a following. I mean, I know you got the Audible sponsorship now. That's like that Corolla, Adam Corolla level podcast. Yeah, right? I'd, like, uh, <laughs> I'd like to say it's at that you level. Stamps.com but... pretty soon. <laughs> or uh, you obviously listen to podcast. whatever, Stamps, whatever the other one. Oh, 99 designs. That's a big one. Everyone gets Squarespace. Marin's Marin's always talking about Squarespace. Hey, gang. Or that's yeah. a terrible Marin impersonation. I'm. I like the, I love his show though. Yeah. All right. So way off topic. Um, I've been shot at. You've been shot at. Garrett. Garrett. That was the last thing. <laughs> it's like, oh wow! I think that you guys talked about that in the last episode. Yeah, we did a little bit. Per- person's just hitting the the skip button right now. They're like, right. no, this is fascinating. I'm sure listening to me. Uh, complain. So, <laughs> you know what? Let's just make this podcast about families and my kids. <laughs> like, you know, I got two puppies that like really. Yeah. Me. <laughs> so, um, uh, having. What, what are we talking about? Uh, introducing <laughs> yeah. stress into training. Yeah, how do we how do we um, add that stress to our training if it's on the individual officer to do that? Mm-hmm. And no, you know, because I, I got to tell you, it gets really tiresome shooting a cardboard, mm-hmm. and um, that's not really something that induces a lot of stress. So how do we how do we do that? I think that other than going to a girl approach a class <laughs> and, and learning a lot, get that soft plug in there <laughs> right now. Um, you know, I, I really think that purposeful stress induced training is something that people could chase their entire career. Cause like, what does that look like? You know, for something like combatives, it's easy. You know, what am I doing that uh, allows me to not get hit in the face or what am I doing that is making me get hit in the face. So you can kind of structure your learning environment. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, for firearm stuff, we have Sims. Um, we can shoot at each other with Sim guns, but as I'm sure you've probably experienced too, is improperly, 
um, uh, conduct, um, not conducted in the right manner, Sims training just turns into paintball where you take unnecessary risks, um, no. and you, uh, you know, you start to mistake good luck with good tactics. So we kind of run into issues there. And I think that the way we get to proper stress induced training, um, so that we can pattern a guy's mind for success, whether that's, Hey, uh, a dude, a drunk guy's running at me with a K bar or, uh, you know, two dudes with AKs are shooting at me is we have to go through realism training and some kind of force on force um, training to where you get to validate that stuff. Now, I know I just said there's a lot of inherent difficulties with, you know, structuring proper purposeful uh, force on force training, but you absolutely need to do that so that, like you said, you don't get into this, uh, the, the, the paper, paper target trap where mm-hmm. I've been shooting at cardboard all right. So what actually, you know, it's stressful to like meet a qual or to do something in a certain margin of accuracy and time, but until, you know, there's a little bit more chaos involved. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways I've been looking at this is in a white paper I've been writing about how do we, you know, introduce stress induced training. And one of the things I looked at was historically how the military has done it. Now, obviously I come from a military background, but the reason I do that is because, you know, we mentioned this earlier, soldiers are specifically designed for the purpose of, you know, killing on behalf of the state, you know, regardless of any political, moral, societal, religious variables that might influence right. a purpose, a person's identity. When you're on the front, you're in a vacuum, you know, it's either you kill the enemy or they kill you. Um, and that's, that's just it. So how does an institution like the military uh, take a civilian and turn them into that kind of an instrument and what i was finding in my research was um you know have you heard the term before range theatrics or theatrical training no but i don't think i have but i can i can visualize exactly what so you mean. It's, it's kind of like more of what uh um more of what we see recently with like social media or something that looks very cool um that's a smoke screen yeah on, so yeah. uh style without substance kind of a thing mm-hmm. Uh, apparently this is something that, uh, militaries have dealt with like historically, like since world war two, uh, one of the things I found was, uh, there was a, uh, a field report written by the Australian military about realism training and how they were worried that it was becoming an opportunity for their instructors to show their bravado to new recruits instead of actually patterning their minds for success. And I was like, mm-hmm. holy crap, that's like the exact same thing. It, you know, nothing is truly new under the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they discovered was, you know, there's a lot of arguments behind, you know, discipline. You know, you need to be disciplined. You know, uh, we got to be able, uh, you know, be disciplined and uh, exercise certain uh, drills to rote so that you can perform them subconsciously. And I'm sure you've heard this argument before a lot about, you know, you need to be able to perform tasks at a subconscious level. And what we found is there's actually a very few amount of things you can do at a subconscious level when you're actually in a stressful environment, whether that's, you know, uh, in a battle or if you're dealing with armed suspects. Um, so it's really more about patterning the individual's mind for success. So, you know, what does that mean? Well, one, you have to actually increase their threshold for stress and what their perspective is there. So you have to overwhelm their stimulus. And a big part of that is replicating the sight, smell and noise of battle, you know, just guns going off around you. Mm-hmm. 
not necessarily someone yelling at you. I truly don't believe that that, that works. I think that, um, you know, military and law enforcement, they kind of fall back on the whole yelling at someone in training to create stress because, you know, it's a martial organization. And, you know, obviously we associate that with, you know, I'm creating stress, but I, I really feel that it only works in academies when you're trying to restructure someone's adherence to authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're in training, if you're like yelling at them, if they're responding to that, they probably, sh- they're, they're beyond their capabilities with training. You need to put the training wheels back on, back up, down a few levels mm-hmm. and make sure you're not overwhelming them. Cause that's how we get to what we talked about earlier with that anxiety of I'm anxious. I need to use my gun. It's like, Whoa, that is not what we're trying to accomplish here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's how do we replicate all these different stimulus and then at the same time condition your mind to think. And, uh, what I found with a lot of the research was, you know, it's very important to do scenario work, um, so that individuals feel stress. So, you know, like you talk about a marksmanship qual, that's very different than a scenario. So obviously there's stress. And like I said, trying to be accurate and fast, uh, but then there's also different stress in like reading the environment, communicating effectively to your teammates. You know, the first time I was on the radio in a leadership position in a training exercise, like my brain turned to just crap. Like I didn't, I, you know, a, a simple thing like saying like alpha team bound forward, you know, uh, you just can't do it because you're overwhelmed with the stress of like, okay, I'm trying to manage personnel resources, trying to keep in mind what the mission is. Um, maybe I'm exhausted because, you know, I've, uh, we've been on our feet for the past, you know, eight hours or whatever. So it's increasing that threshold like that cortisol, like you said earlier, so that people have a different perspective Mm -hmm. and how do we get there? Um, man, there's a lot of different ways, but I think that there's definitely some that are, um, better than others, uh, with regards to what you can actually do to create a purposeful stress environment. Can you do something? Is there things you can do on your own? I mean, if you're on, if you're going to the range by yourself and I'm assuming, you know, I'm not thinking of a range like a commercial range with the lanes and, you know, very strict rules. But if you have the opportunity to be in a, maybe more of a rival range or an open range like that. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're by yourself, there, there's always this, you know, fine threshold between like, am I shooting or am I doing a CrossFit workout <laughs> with, you know, um, I think it's good to get familiar with shooting with like an elevated heart rate. Um, but you know, do you need to do a hundred burpees or 10 burpees before you shoot your pistol, you know? And, and if you're doing that, are you, not losing focus of your marksmanship fundamentals, you know, trigger control, breathing, uh, your follow through and, you know, everything Mm -hmm. else that goes into taking a well-placed and accurate shot. Um, so I think that there's definitely the importance of familiarizing yourself of shooting with an elevated heart rate, but being very cautious with thinking that means you understand how to interact in a stress induced environment in one of the, or excuse me, a a stressful environment. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I do with my vehicle classes is when I'm teaching, just a simple bailout technique. So moving towards the rear of the vehicle, we do it in a very controlled and sterile manner. We'll do dry runs. Um, and for some guys, they'll feel like, man, I already know how to do this. Like, okay, no, I, I get it. I understand. And then the moment we go live, they'll experience a tactical hiccup because, you know, something happens in the environment, you know, they slip or they kick the door open they, they forget to prop it open and it comes back on them. Or maybe they're just trying to outrun their headlights and there's this self induced stress that brings their, you know, that, excuse me, uh, impacts their performance negatively. And it's just very simple. It's not me standing there screaming at them. I'm mm-hmm. not like, you know, throwing flashbangs under the car. 
uh, or anything like that. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, definitely have done that <laughs> before because it's awesome. Sounds, <laughs> say, sounds cool. <laughs> why, because why wouldn't you want to throw a flashbang? Yeah. Um, no, but you know, it's it's truly um, embracing the crawl walk run method. Now that's that's a phrase that gets used or excuse me, misused a lot because we interpret it as like on uh, the crawl phase you do so or the crawl phase you do something easy. In the walk phase you do something harder. In the run phase you do something harder. It's like, no, nah, that's not really how it works out. You know, in a simplistic, you know, assessment it might look like that's what's taking place. Uh but, you know, just recognizing that the reason why we do stuff to a level of um perfection through repetition is because when it is in the real world and it kicks off, we need to fall back on those kind of rote skills that we've drilled in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, I did just say that, you know, there's very few things that you can do at a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. So it's not expecting your body to like go into autopilot, but it's understanding that if you've drilled something to the point of a level of awareness where you're confident that, Hey, this is the right thing to do right now. And even if it's not, necessarily the best thing to do you're still making a decision it's something yeah you're still doing something and you can deal with the consequences right. once you get your next piece of uh, cover and concealment so i think that's you know that is what helps guys is recognizing that a um a progressive approach with the material um and truly recognizing what it's accomplishing you know mm-hmm. is this something that's cool you know is it cool to do um 100 burpees bounding in between cars and shooting a gun that would probably look really cool i think that would be exhausting but like what's the actual learning you know that's Mm -hmm. taking place there if the point is like smoke a guy smoke him cool but if you're trying to increase his stress threshold yeah i think that you know team communication or uh, a blind shoot is one of the best ways to do it you know if you don't know where the targets are your body behaves a lot differently yeah i i totally agree with that uh i heard uh, a friend of mine who's down in la he's a cop in la he's a swat cop uh down there totally squared away guy i heard him say the other uh recently that one of the things he does is in the middle this is more for his physical workouts but i think it would apply to uh, firearms training as well is in the middle of all this he gives himself a mental project that he has to work on and it's simple but he'll uh he'll like preset some math problems and as he's mid workout he will try and answer one of these not terribly complicated but you know some addition subtraction division problem that keeps his mind, uh, you know, focused or, or engaged during the workout. So he doesn't check out, I think, or he'll start, uh, he'll do the alphabet backwards or he'll pick the, pick a letter in the alphabet and work backwards from there to try you know, and I thought of that and I thought that was kind of interesting because I could see how that would apply in a stressful situation where you need to be doing physical tasks, but like for, you know, for like a supervisor or anyone who has to direct people in a tactical manner keeps you um your ability to engage your mind as well i don't know have you ever tried anything like that i always thought that the addition of subtraction of weights on the bar was enough <laughs> math for me <laughs> uh 225 plus 10 245 wait <laughs> uh no i you know i i think there's some validity to trying to um you know have more frontal lobe processing taking place when you're, you have an elevated heart rate. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that the way you describe the way he's doing it makes sense because he's not like, you know, all right, I'm, you know, writing a thesis out. Right. Right. It's, 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 
it's enough to transition his mind away from, Hey, I'm just, you know, lifting weights right now to where I have to actually go into some kind of deep, uh, uh, focus to where I'm trying to shift my mindset and then shift it back. You know, I think mm-hmm. that there's you know, probably absolutely some validity, um, behind that, but yeah, it's interesting. I never heard of it. And then all of a sudden you mentioned it. I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. That would, it's enough to keep you focused on the fact that you have to make decisions. I mean, the math problem is essentially a decision or those kinds of things. And those things have to happen while during an elevated heart rate when you're, you know, on the job as well. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think there's, you know, definitely some stamina, cognitive stamina, cognitive stamina behind that. that. Trademark that. That just, that sounds, that sounds 2017 course catalog, cognitive stamina, cognitive stamina, tactical marksmanship (laughs) vehicle class. So, so, okay. So two big things, it seems that come out, came out of two, 2016 for you were, um, you did, you've done a lot of vehicle, uh, not interdiction. What's the word? Vehicle tactics courses. And you focus a lot on vehicles this year. What, what basically, what is the course uh, real quick? And then, you know, why'd you pick that as, as something to emphasize so much? I picked that because it is topical. Um, you know, it's, it is something that uh, I think a lot of law enforcement officers are starting to uh, focus their attention on because you guys are, you know, around your cars a lot. Um, and it's, kind of goes back into what I was saying about it's more about having the broader understanding of tactics than trying to focus on a specific thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a lot of, um, uh, ideas out there that like, you know, vehicle close quarter fighting or close quarter battle techniques. And it's like, nah, bro, a car is a piece of terrain. You know, it's a car when it's moving and it's a piece of terrain. Other than that, you know, you obviously need to know how, you're going to interact with that piece of terrain in the environment, how bullets are going to interact with it. But this is kind of what I was talking about earlier with like guys getting too into the weeds about stuff where it's like, Oh man, it's like, this is, you know, this all these new fighting techniques around cars. It's like, no, you know, there's, you have the tactical mindset to understand how you can apply different techniques in that situation. Um, so that's, that was my focus with the class. And it's, you know, when it first started off, it was trying just to, you know, give guys that extra edge of awareness of what it's like to be in a high threat environment, uh, what it's like to be in a situation where you're going up against multiple, um, armed suspect, armed and armored suspects and how that should change your posture. Because, you know, I think a a majority of the, uh, officer involved shootings that you do see around vehicles, um, are what we talked about earlier with that, you know, close quarter engagement, it's going to be over very quickly. You don't need a special vehicle program, you know, vehicle tactics, you know, to teach you how to do that. That's more of just, you know, understanding close quarter engagements in and around terrain. It shouldn't matter if a car you're using a car as cover or a rock or a mailbox, you know, well, it probably matter if you're, you know, using a, like a mailbox. <laughs> mailbox. I'm having a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe like a mailbox from the fifties when they're made out of <laughs> right. lead and yeah. a nuclear bomb goes off. You can right. jump inside those things and survive. Um, Someone on the internet's gonna be like, actually, from the, uh, you can't survive a nuclear bomb. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's you know transcending this idea of like we need a specific tactic for each thing. It's like no, you need a tactical mindset that allows you to read the terrain. You know, I, and uh, I look at this like with soldiers in the woods. Like you don't have like a tree CQB program where it's like, well, we need to see how bullets interact with different trees or like you know how we can use those for 
you know, protection and how this can influence our tactics. It's like, no, you just need mindset, bro. So this first bro slipped out. <laughs> I was hanging out with some seals earlier. Um, so the intent of the class was just kind of make guys aware of what to do when you're in a, an ambush in a high threat environment. And the biggest thing is you don't necessarily know where the gunfire is coming from. You know, anyone that's ever been shot at before, unless you are directly in line with the person that's shooting at you, it is very hard to tell where the fire is coming from. Mm -hmm. So let's amplify that by two or three individuals, or excuse me, armed suspects to where you can't stay static. Mm -hmm. The fight's not going to be over in three to five seconds. Like a typical OIS, it's going to be a little bit more prolonged sustained. And you need to make some very immediate decisions, usually a bad decision or a worse decision, but you need to make a decision so that you can get moving and start to develop a situation on your behalf, or at least create enough separation so that you can have some breathing room. Mm-hmm. So that was the intent of the course uh, when I started off. And uh, guys were guys were receptive to it because they realized like, hey, this is a gap in our tactical abilities. Like we don't, we, we train for the OIS that's, you know, in close quarter. Right. You know, we train for, you know, like CQB when we're serving warrants. But we don't really understand, you know, counter ambush, close quarter um, engagements where it is extremely violent. And you need to make, or excuse me, you need to make decisions uh, very quickly. So what the course has kind of turned into is uh, it, we still use that as the foundation. Um, but we structure it more towards, you know, what is the most um, uh, dangerous kind of domestic terror attack you can expect to encounter. And I use the, uh, the Paris ISIS attack as like the frame of reference. Now, is that an outlier? You know, can we get into a long drawn out discussion about, you know, you know, again, that paradox law enforcement faces with, this is the least likely event they can expect to encounter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I argue that if, even though it's the least likely event you can expect to encounter, it doesn't mean that it is unlikely Sure. Regardless of that, though, you can still pattern your training. You can still pattern your tactical mindset off of what you would do in that situation versus what you would do against one person, sure. against two people. Um, so that's what the course has turned more into. And, you know, I've just been very fortunate to work with, again, some of the most, I think, forward thinking uh, cops in the country. And we've now adapted it to where there's different variations of the class. There's like the basic patrol version. There's um, the one for... Uh, like narcs and guys doing like, you know, low visibility stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's ones for like, you know, the guys on the, uh, um, the really special um, task force that are, you know, rolling around um, doing, <laughs> is it too obvious? I'm trying all to like those, dance around all the secret squirrel stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some pretty cool stuff. So yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's been, it's been successful because, you know, the guys that are participating in it, um, are, uh, they're, they're aware, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. they, they, they want to improve their skill sets and they recognize that, you know, maybe there's a certain way we can accomplish that. And you had the opportunity to shoot a production, a full production video cor- version of this course earlier this year, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, with Pantio Productions, I got to be the first brown guy on their <laughs> roster of instructors so i'm still not sure yet if this was an affirmative action thing or if they <laughs> just had uh, to check that box on <laughs> they're like ah oh, crap it's 2007 or 2016 we, we got need a, a non-white guy yeah we need a non-white guy 
Get a, get us a millennial. Well, either way, you got there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, millennial. They need a millennial. Millennial that understands Instagram and <laughs> if he's not full white, we can <laughs> be better. So uh, where was that shot? That was in uh, that their facility in South Carolina. And that was, that was a unique experience because, you know, when an instructor teaches a class, you know, what we typically do is we get frustrated because we know you're not paying attention and you're just going to copy what we do when we shoot the exercise. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Is, <laughs> is, you know, I, you know I've, I've been a student, you know, so I, I, I know all the tricks of like, you know, well, I wouldn't say tricks, but I know that like, you know, guys have very limited attention span when they're on their feet. So it's like, how do you create uh, an engagement, engaging learning environment so that guys are paying attention, especially if they're out like in, you know, 30 degree weather. And it's just like, dude, yeah, <laughs> dude, let me shoot through the windshield already, man. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I thought that that was a unique experience because a lot of times as instructors will explain something and then we'll watch students perform and then we'll just make corrections. So it's a very, um, uh, interactive learning environment where mm-hmm. you can say something and as long as the key concept is out there, you can just go make corrections down the line. Uh, whereas when you're filming a feature like that, and you've got maybe five minutes to say everything you have to say about that certain you know subject, or maybe 10 minutes to say everything you have about that certain subject. I think it's a true test of whether or not you understand the concepts and the material, mm-hmm. because it's one thing to, you know, regardless of what I'm talking about, I'm talking about trigger control. If I'm, you know, up in front of you and for five minutes, I talk about trigger control on a pistol and then, Oh, I remember this one thing. And then I come back and I'm later and I introduce it and I say, Hell yeah, hey guys, blah, 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 blah. And then like, oh yeah, I remember this other thing. I come back. You know, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong right. with that because your presentation has to be pretty dialed in. Yeah. But when you have to just in one take put it all out there, mm-hmm. you know, that's a uh you know, I think that's a, a different level of uh, depth of understanding with the material. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, obviously I'm not saying this, just jerk myself off or do we just get the explicit <laughs> tag for this? It's all right. So, um, you know, like, you know, pat myself on the back or anything, but it's, uh, it, it's hard, you know, it's hard to, well, talking to a camera is difficult in itself anyways. Like, you know, talking to, I'll talk to a room full of 400 people. Like, I, don't, right. I don't care. But the moment you talk to a lens that's like staring into your soul, your brain just turns to mush. <laughs> And, uh, maybe, maybe actors do have a hard job or no, <laughs> no, they don't. Or, ah, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. So is that available now? Yeah. That's, uh, that's streaming through Pantheon or you can actually get the hard DVD, uh, through my website, which is gorillaapproach.com. There you go. And we'll put the, uh, address in the show notes as well. So what's, uh, 2017 have in store for you? You'll be do- doing more traveling around the country, doing this teaching. Yeah, I'm going to be branching out of the West Coast a lot more, uh, hitting the Midwest and the East Coast with the vehicle class. Uh, one of the things I'm going to be focusing a lot more on, too, is I don't want to say active shooter because guys are tired of that, but just how do we uh, get patrol officers more comfortable with clearing a structure in that type of an event to where you know a lot of times the CQB that they've been taught um, or informally learn through like, you know, the SWAT guys, uh, is a little bit different than what they're actually going to be using when they're trying to, uh, very quickly close the distance with and engage, mm-hmm. um, the threat. So it's, I mean, 
I'm hesitant to call it like active shooter, like CQB or something, because that just sounds ridiculous. Uh, but just how to like better prepare guys as singletons or one and two man teams flowing through a structure, understanding when they can hit the gas pedal as fast as they can versus when they need to maybe uh, yeah. slow down a little bit. And I think that that's something that um, is not uh, addressed at large because, I mean, you guys typically either have like your slow and methodical or your hostage rescue. Right. And maybe there's still some guys clinging to the uh, dynamic entry stuff. Um, but we've learned that like, you know, those three different things work for three different skill sets um, with regards to serving warrants, hostage rescue, um, or just, you know, clearing through a structure and how we want to change the mindset for, again, that guy at the patrol level um, to make him feel comfortable basically running through the house with yeah. a pistol or running through a university with a pistol and not feeling like he's, you know, leaving himself exposed. So yeah. how do we dial in, you know, what the appropriate um, speed is? That sounds amazing because, you know, like you just said, we have building searches, which we do constantly. Um, but going back again to that rotation of personnel and people who how you search a building with one person isn't necessarily how you search it with another person, and even though it should be mm-hmm. consistent. But it just isn't, you know, you have a person with 20 years on and a rookie. Those skill sets are going to be much sharper and honestly in the rookie who's got it fresher in their mind and has not had this 20 years of, well, nothing's happened yet, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's that disparity there. And those are usually typically slow and methodical, but they can also be very sloppy uh, because of that. But then, yeah, jumping, moving through that, that spectrum from, well, okay, we have, we have all the time in the world and it's just a basic alarm call and we don't think anyone's in there, all the way up through any potential uh, scenario that involves like you just said running running through a campus or running you know clearing a building as fast as possible and that i can tell you my personal experience that it, that sort of practice is itself a stress inducing you know event mm-hmm. r- r- clearing that quickly i'm not a swat cop so i don't do it all the time right and we don't use uh we very often won't clear buildings with patrol rifles very consistently so just even that muzzle discipline of up mm-hmm. and down or uh, those sorts of things are all factors that I would be very interested to learn. Well, that's, um, I mean, not to do too far of a callback, but, um, that's one of the things I've noticed in a lot of the actual active shooter training is the amount of fratricide that takes place when guys are like shooting Sims, you know, and, Mm -hmm. uh, getting back to what you're saying about, uh, proper stress induced training. Like, no, I, I totally get it. Like when I was a private going through small unit, uh, training in the Q course, um, like one of the very first like realism training events we went through, we were doing a mock raid, uh, like a platoon level raid. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, there's like 20 ish guys out there and we're just clearing through a village and it was at night and this guy came around the corner and like shot at me and the guy next to me in the line. And because the guy next to me was like slightly offset, I totally smoked him with my blank, you know, mm. <laughs> with my blank. I was like, Oh my God. You know, cause I was just so overwhelmed with like, Oh, oh crap. That I, um, you know, shot my buddy. Yeah. And that's one of those, like, stress-induced things where, like, oh, okay, I see what happened. I was overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And I feel like someone's going to, like, edit this and be like, Aaron Brug, a girl approach, shoots buddy in training event. You know? <laughs> um, no, but, like, it, if that's the importance of that stress-induced training. And, like, you know, if you guys are not familiar with going through a house or a structure with patrol rifles, 
you know, I, I see it when guys are doing the sim gun training. If they got the SB tactical vests on with the IR guns, like a lot of dudes like accidentally shoot. Mm-hmm. So how do we get them above um, or to transcend that level of stress uh, on yeah. their performance? That's a constant, constant struggle. It, it'll be something we can talk about for years and years <laughs> and years because until we until we reach the point with that that we're never going to reach where our our training time is the equivalent of our time out on patrol i don't know if we're ever going to get there mm-hmm. you know I, I just we just don't we're in a deficit we're always going to be in a deficit so it's you know it's on each of us to get as best as good as we can learn from the people that we think make the most sense and i think you make a very good point to to believe what you want to believe but have a justification behind it and mm-hmm. understand the why and that goes to anything, I think. But understand the why behind why you do something, uh, and 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 be open to learning new tactics. You know, new. I don't want to say tricks, but new methods. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I got eleven years in, and I haven't. I'm working on a different draw now. All of a sudden, after twelve years, you know, mm-hmm. um, totally a learning curve problem for me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's not something that you learn overnight or you learn within a thousand rounds. Um, but a different draw and, and tactical reload situation that people s- since my time have learned and are very fluid with. Mm-hmm. I like it better than the way I was taught, but it's a huge, is it getting away from leap. that streamline approach? Is it? What, what do you mean? A streamline? Uh, well, I was in the Academy. I was taught, right? I mean, you, you were, Kind of like a modified weaver stance, and you would always, always keep your muzzle down range and pointed on target, and you were doing all of your reloads basically at straight at mm-hmm. stiff arm length, right? And everything's still pointed at the range. Where now guys are bringing it in, bringing it in a little closer. Mm-hmm. And you can manipulate uh, a little closer to your chest. You don't necessarily have to keep your uh, sights on target. Um, and it's, I think there's a lot of uh, justification for those. Uh, minuscule motor patterns that you're able to do right in front of your face versus, you know, all the way out here. Yeah. Especially when it's nighttime too. And your spatial awareness, just nighttime. Oh yeah. All that stuff. So it's, but it is something I just recently adopted, but it takes a lot of effort. It'd be much easier to be like, that's the way I learned it. So I'm just going to stick with that. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. No. And that's that whole thing where guys fall into the, uh, just the, the trap of the shooter's preference fallacy, if you will, where it's like, that's just how I do it, bro. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's that's not enough to like substantiate, you know, your argument or your opinion, you know. That's but at the same time like it's exhausting to approach every new technique with an open mind because there's a lot of stupid stuff yeah. <laughs> out there, man. There's a lot of nonsense. Well, we know that you will be on the warpath against the stupid stuff for the foreseeable future. Um <laughs> that's that's like your mission. Where uh, can people find out more about you and about Gorilla Approach? And if they want to take a class, where should they be going to look for that? So the course listing is on our website. It's Gorilla Approach. Gorilla spelled not like Harambe, but like (laughs) a partisan warfire. G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. Approach.com. And then I'm always posting um, stuff onto Instagram and Facebook that I think is you know, interesting. I'm not really into like the gun porn stuff. I think, you know, yeah, but it kind of, I mean, it's, I'm like, yeah, it is though, because I, I, I look at yours for, but it's more like, it's not just, you don't, you do videos. I mean, you really emphasize, I mean, you're a millennial, like you said, and you know how to work Instagram. <laughs> you're not just these static shots of like 
pocket dumps of what you carry. You're you're showing like some really cool yeah I, stuff from your classes of shooting around vehicles and moving and cover and like there was one of you climbing on the Connex container. I'm like, that just looks like a fun day. <laughs> <laughs> Hold my beer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah no, this. I I want to start. You know, I want everything that I do to like start a discussion. You know, right. kind of. So like, I I don't believe in like the whole like uh you know as an instructor, like NASCARing yourself, like, you know, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm shooting my blah, 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 optic with blah, 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 ammo yeah. with blah, blah, blah. Like, okay. You lose legitimacy. I think the moment you do that. Um, but I want, you know, I don't, I don't want people to check in on my page. Cause they're like, man, I want to see Aaron, like, you know, shoot El Prez real quick. Like, no, I want them to check in on my account because I'm going to say something that maybe, um, uh, presents information in a different way, or maybe it yeah. presents, information or even if it does validate what they already think it's Mm -hmm. a different perspective or whatever and you know i i I thought about this with my you know 2017 writing strategy where you know this year i was a lot more um writing a lot more op-eds and i think critiques uh just because it was like you know uh, a very strong voice that was gaming uh support Mm -hmm. and you know i was talking to one of my students and I was like, hey, man, like, do you think I need to, like, back that down at all? Like, obviously, like, there's no point, like, like trash talking people. But, like, I I will uh, critique an idea mm-hmm. uh, the same way, like, academics do. I sure. mean, you want to talk about people that trash talk each other. Holy <laughs> crap, man. Academics, <laughs> you, yeah. You've been in a room full of professors just, like, <laughs> those are fighting words, man. Um, but they're all passive aggressive anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, uh, so, but I was like, man, like, I, re- I really don't want to write like the puff piece that like, you know, you know, the audience that's like spoon feed me my like mm-hmm. spoon feed me my content spoon, like make me my content. I want you to write this or that. It's like, no, I'd, I'd rather, you know, write something that causes people to not react because I think that's cheap, but to well, have think. to think about right. something which is seldom accomplished in the training industry. People just want to subscribe to what they subscribe to. There's other guys out there doing, I think, a great job of you know, challenging people to think. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it's just, and it's hard on social media too, given the length, but yeah. I, mean, I think you succeeded it. Well, I, one of my, I really liked to post you put up recently about, you know, offsetting behind using the vehicle as cover and offsetting uh, your cover. Like you posted, I think it was four different bullet points in that little post about things to consider, not necessarily wrong, not necessarily right, but to consider. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, one of them was, you know, you said, you know, this, this tactic makes uh, this tactic has to assume that your uh, your opponent is a bad shot. Yeah, and I was like, that's a very good point. And and more and more and more, we're seeing our our opponents being actually quite good shots. Yeah, I so so I, I think you su- succeed in that, and, and that's why I enjoy it. In, in, in addition to the videos and and that stuff. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, man. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, good to have you back on, Aaron. Uh, appreciate you being, uh, you know, flexible with my uh, my sick son who is uh, uh, suffering a bit of a cold right now, and he's home, so uh, we had to stop a couple times. Appreciate you being flexible with that, and uh, I'll put every uh, link you have in the in the show notes, and um, you know, open invite to come back and talk more tactics and training. Uh, you know, for a third time, I'll have you back on. You'll be like a like a co-host. Three Pete. Three Pete. You might be my first three Peter. Who knows? Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> Thanks for coming by, man. I appreciate it, Garrett. Thank you.